Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Help us to listen to you, Father. Father, you have proclaimed that Christ Jesus, he is your servant, that you called him, just as the prophet Isaiah said, you called him in righteousness. You took him by the hand and you kept him. You gave him as a covenant for your people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. You are the Lord, that's your name, and your glory you will share with no other, and yet you have shared it with your son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we look at the text today, I pray that you would do for us what you have sent Jesus to do uh, in this passage from Isaiah that was just read, that you would open our eyes that are blind, that you would release us, Father, from any imprisonment, spiritual imprisonment that, that we are in. Father, if we do not know you, I pray that today we might. Father, if you seem far away from us, I pray that today you would draw us near to yourself. Father, Christ is such an incredible Savior, and we pray that he would be made much of in our own hearts and minds. Lord, I so long that we would be able to see what Jesus is saying to us, uh, saying to, to these Jews back then, that, that we would be able to see it for us today, that we would be able to appreciate all that you have said in your word, all that John has recorded. But we need your help in doing that. So we ask that you would remove from us any distractions that we might bring. Lord, I pray that you would quiet our minds and our hearts, that we would focus in on what you have to say for us. Lord, by your spirit, I pray once again that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. You are a great God who is able to do anything, created the heavens and the earth. And so now we ask that you would be Lord over our own hearts, over our own ears and our own senses, and draw our attention, fix our attention upon your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Well, over these next few weeks, this week and then next week, we're going to be picking up in chapter 5 of John, where uh, Mike just read for us John's Gospel. And uh, you may or may not remember, a few months ago, uh, we looked at the first 18 verses of John 5. It was the account of the man that Jesus healed, uh, who had been an invalid for 38 years. And this is not the first healing that, that John records in his gospel, but this healing was received quite differently by the Jewish authorities. And we talked about that a few months ago. But in case you don't remember, let's bring, I just want to bring you up to speed. There were two reasons really kind of two parts to a reason uh, why uh, this particular healing was received differently. The first was that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. In July, I made the argument that Jesus was not actually breaking the Sabbath, but he was in part fulfilling it. We read in verse 16, and I guess I would encourage you to open up uh, your Bible to John 5, if you haven't already done so, to be able to follow along in the text but we read in John 5, 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then in verse 17, Jesus doesn't point out their erroneous understanding of the Sabbath, but instead he answers them. Jesus says to them, 
My father is working until now, and I am working. Well, the anger of the Jews at that point uh, went from simply persecuting Jesus to sentencing him to death. Right? They wanted to kill him at that point. Verse 18 summarizes their response. Right? This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, we, we just read in uh, Isaiah right, that God said, I will share my glory with no other. And here is this man, Jesus, making himself to be equal with God. And the, questions, the question I think that was looming in their minds must have been, who does this guy think he is? Who is this man, Jesus, right? He either thinks that he himself is God, which, I mean, is unthinkable, or he was a blasphemer, which was an act worth death. What we find in the rest of the chapter, what we're looking at today and what we'll look at next week, is Jesus' response to these Jews. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we're confronted by the vitally important question, who is this man, Jesus? As I said, up to now, Jesus had been received well. He was baptized by John. He'd done some teaching. He'd performed miraculous signs. He'd even cleansed the temple by overturning the tables of the money changers. And yet still, he was received well. And as we will see in chapter 6, he had started to gain a considerable following. A multitude was following them certainly by uh, the beginning of chapter 6. And once again, we get the impression that all of this would have been fine with the Jewish leaders until Jesus had crossed that line. And let's be sure what the line was, right? The line that Jesus crossed was not simply a matter of standing up to some unjust or wrong-headed Jewish leaders, although we will find that they were both unjust and wrong-headed but the line that Jesus crossed, at least in the mind of these leaders, was that Jesus was acting and speaking in such a way to make it seem that Jesus believed himself to be equal with God. This man believed himself to be equal with God. Who does Jesus think he is? Or we might ask, who does Jesus think he is? Is he a, a narcissistic megalomaniac? Or is he just simply misunderstood by these guys, right? Or is he indeed the unique son of God? Well, whatever our, however we answer this question, it's going to require a different response from us. If he's a narcissist, right, we just ignore him as another lunatic from the annals of history. Right? If he's sorely understood, right, we, we might do our best to reinterpret or dismiss his claims to deity and just view him as a wise teacher. Right? We've, we've heard people do that. But if he is the only son of God, then our response needs to be entirely different, doesn't it? And how we answer this question will determine what we think about Jesus. It will determine how we respond to Jesus. And ultimately, it will determine how we are judged by Jesus in the very end. So who is Jesus? Right? There's a lot we could say, but to put it very simply, we'd say that Jesus is the unique son of God. Listen to this summary from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That is that the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Jesus, the eternal son of God, has been sent by God to redeem God's people. Now, if that seems like really densely packed, it's because it is. There's a lot here, and we aren't going to be able to touch all of it. But in our text this morning, I hope that we will see that Jesus affirms that he is God's son, and that he sheds some light on how we ought to respond to him, what a response ought to be. So you'll see the outline in your program, and that's we begin that Jesus is the unique Son of God, and therefore we should honor him. The first thing that we should do is honor him. Right, the Jewish leaders, right, as we saw, they rejected Jesus because they thought that he was blaspheming. They thought that he was not honoring God by healing on the Sabbath. But listen to Jesus' response starting in verse 19. He says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The first claim that Jesus makes is that his actions are perfectly aligned with the father's actions. If they didn't like Jesus healing on the Sabbath, they didn't like what God the father was doing. That's not how they saw it. The truth was that the healing on the Sabbath, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident done on a wrong day or just out of step with the will of God, just by a little bit. But it was within step with God's will and character, the Father's character. In fact, really, when we read through all the Gospels, we see that everything Jesus did was in keeping with the Father. He didn't do anything that was out of step with the Father. And that's what Jesus says here. He was God's perfect agent, always acting according to God's perfect will. And so in a way, you could say, right, that's why Paul says uh, to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? To see Jesus is to see God the Father, right? What is God the Father doing? Look at Jesus and you see what God the Father was doing at that time. But Jesus was more than just the perfect representative, Jesus goes on in verse 20. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them, so that you may marvel. Now Jesus makes three claims with these words. The first is to his divinity. right? In order that he could do everything that the Father does, Jesus himself must be divine. He does everything the Father does. He must be divine. D.A. Carson says that, that the only one who could conceivably do whatever the Father does must be as great as the Father, as divine as the Father. So Jesus was indeed claiming deity. He was also claiming intimacy with the Father. Think about it. It was motivated by love that the Father withholds nothing from the Son but it's also motivated by love that the Son perfectly obeys the Father. John 14, 15, Jesus told his disciples, right, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And here Jesus is saying that he keeps the Father's commandments perfectly. So his obedience is an act of love, and we see this throughout the Gospels as well as the New Testament. So there's divinity, there's intimacy with the Father, 
And there's also an understanding of the greater, uh, of God's greater plan. When Jesus says that greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel, Jesus is saying a couple things, right? The first thing that comes to my mind when I saw this was, right, if you think that healing was cool, just wait, right? There's way more amazing things that are coming. And if, if you just look at the progression of John's gospel, it's true, right? Yeah, he healed a guy who'd been lame for a really long time, but by chapter 11, Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead. But it means more than that, doesn't it? These were also words of condemnation against these Jewish leaders. Right? He's saying, you ought to have been impressed. You ought to have been amazed. You ought to marvel at what just happened. But indeed, you do not. Right? They were blinded by what they expected to happen. Right? They failed to be impressed by the miracle because all they could see was a man carrying his mat on the Sabbath. So that when Jesus claimed to be God, that God was his father, right, they failed to consider the possibility that he actually might be telling the truth. Right? Because they'd already ignored the supporting evidence. Calvin wrote that by adding these words, he indirectly charges them with ingratitude in despising so illustrious a demonstration of the power of God. It is as if Jesus had said to them, although you are dull and stupid, yet the works which God shall afterward perform by me will draw you, however reluctantly, into admiration. Calvin goes on to say, and yet it appears not to have been fulfilled, for we know that seeing they saw not. As Isaiah also says, that the reprobate are blind in the midst of the light of God. We need to think about that. The logic, I'm sorry, the weakness was not in their logic, but their inability to see, their inability to be in awe of what God was doing. Think about for a moment Israel in the wilderness. Right here, God is providing manna for them every day. They're no longer amazed by God's daily provision of manna. Their hearts were hardened against God, and so they ceased to be grateful. They, they despised his blessing because it didn't meet their expectations. It wasn't good enough for them. I think in the same way, we, we need to guard our own hearts. Right? When God's provision of grace in our own lives doesn't feel like it's living up to our expectations, even for us, right, it, can, it can become all too easy for us to be blind to what God is actually doing what he's trying to accomplish in us. Right? Our hearts can be hardened against God. And when they are, we cease to be grateful. Right? We despise his blessing because it doesn't meet our expectation. How has God's grace felt to you over the last 18 months? I, don't, I, I talk to a lot of people, and I don't know very many. I think maybe two that I can say uh, that these last 18 months has been great for them. It's been hard. Has disappointment and unmet expectation over these last 18 months hardened your heart enough that you struggle to see God's daily provision of grace in your own life? I know it's been a struggle for me. But see, we honor Jesus as the Son of God when we marvel at the grace that he pours out 
to every believer each and every day, right? A grace that he purchased through his obedience to the Father. A grace that he purchased through the cross. Jesus' words lay claim to his divinity, his intimacy with the Father, and his understanding of God's greater plan. But Jesus goes on in verse 21. Jesus next will claim that the Father has entrusted him with things that he would entrust to no other, and that is the giving of life and judgment. So as we look at verse 21, we see, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, the Old Testament writers, they, pre- they presupposed that the raising of the dead was a prerogative belonging only to God. Right? Only God could raise the dead. One scholar noted that there are actually three things in the Old Testament uh, that remained in God's hand and were never entrusted to representatives. Right? One was rain. We see that uh, in uh, the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy 28.12. Also the womb and life-giving there, Genesis 30.22. And the key of, resu- of the resurrection from the dead. And we see that it's only the Lord's in Ezekiel 37, 13. Now, Elijah was sometimes recognized as an exception to that rule. Right? He served as a representative of God in raising the dead. But Jesus' authority in this regard goes way beyond Elijah. Right? For, what does the text say? The text says that for the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. The Son gets to give it whom he is pleased to. Unlike Elijah, Jesus isn't a mere instrument of divine power. Jesus is the one. He's the agent. Jesus is able to give life to whom he wills. He's not a puppet. In fact, the Father judges, he says that the Father judges no one. And and how can that be? The very reason that he's entrusted all judgment to the Son So when we really look at what Jesus is saying, we realize that, yes, the Jewish leaders were right in understanding that Jesus was making himself equal with God, but not in the way that they thought he was. What did they think? They thought that he was bringing God down. Somehow he was diminishing God's glory. But in reality, Jesus was revealing who he was. He was showing them, he was telling them who he truly was. And here we see distinctions, right, that, uh, in the function of the Godhead, right? The Father, we know the Father doesn't die on the cross, right? Jesus dies on the cross. So there's a distinction there. Also, judgment is given through the Son, both to give life spiritually uh, to dead sinners as well as on the final day. But here we've got equality with distinction. Right? It's not as though Jesus was bringing God down, but it, it was as though Jesus was revealing himself and raising himself to God's level because he was indeed God, the Son. And as God's unique Son, Jesus was sent down into our rebellious world so that we might reconcile, he might reconcile sinners to himself. And the reality is that, that we dishonor God when we fail to realize who Jesus is and the role that he serves. You can't worship the Father. You can't claim to worship the Father and neglect the Son. 
right? So religious cults, right? This is just more on the side. Religious cults that fail to recognize Jesus as fully God, such as Jehovah's Witness, according to Jesus' own words, they do not honor God the Father at all. And in fact, I would say if somebody who's part of the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, knocks on your door, I'd encourage you to take them to these verses and encourage them that if they want to honor the Father, they must in the same way honor the Son. Honor Jesus as the Son, right? And if they don't, ultimately, they're rejecting God completely. So Jesus, as a unique Son of God, therefore, we should honor him, we should believe in him. We now come to the heart of the gospel as Jesus presses his audience with the importance of hearing and believing his words, as well as the present invitation to salvation, the present invitation to cross over from condemnation and death to eternal life. Verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you hear nothing else, if you have zoned out up to now and you're going to zone out in a little bit, I want you to hear this, right? I want you to hear this. Everything that Jesus taught, all the miraculous signs, the very reason that John wrote his gospel was so that you might hear Jesus' words and believe that the Father sent him to bring you eternal life. Right? We read in Genesis 1, what? That, that God spoke and the world came into being. We saw in John 5, 8, that Jesus spoke to a man by the pool, and at once the man was healed. John 11, Jesus, coming up, as we already mentioned, will speak to Lazarus, a man who had been dead for four days. And Lazarus rose from the dead. Right? The power is not in the words themselves. It's not some, some magical incantation. Power is the one who speaks the words. Those are each amazing miracles, but each of those miracles are but a shadow of the greater work that God does in the life of those who believe. Remember what Mike read from Romans chapter 10? Mike read from Romans, right? 10, uh, 9 through 13, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I think we missed that one. So I'm going to read it to you right now. I think I thought it was in there. Obviously, I did. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the most, one of the most marvelous, the most amazing pieces of news in the universe. Right, that the creator of the universe would send his only son to save sinners like you and me. That Jesus would be willing to lay down his sinless life to die on a cross for sinners like you and me. Right, no one has ever shown more love to sinners. This is what we should be amazed at. Right? I remember 
My life changed considerably in college. I grew up going to church every Sunday. And I know I've told this story before, but I think it's worth repeating. I knew all the Bible stories, but it wasn't until I was in college and a friend of mine shared the gospel with me that my life was changed, right? I, I had been living a life of hypocrisy, right? I, I, was, I was embracing my sin, and it weighed heavily on my conscience, right? But when my friend Joshua, he shared the gospel with me, my life was utterly transformed, right? It didn't... I didn't necessarily understand everything at that point, but I, I felt true freedom from God's condemnation, condemnation of my sin. I felt truly alive. Right? Why? Because I knew that everything I had done was no longer counted against me. Every sin I had committed, and there were a lot, no longer would I have to pay for them. Right? Jesus is the unique Son of God, and so what does he say here? He says that we should believe in him, we should trust in him, for, for salvation, to be delivered from our sins, his power to save sinners like you and me. We should trust in him and believe in him by taking that he will indeed take upon himself our sins upon his shoulders, freeing us from God's wrath and judgment, and in exchange giving us his righteousness and eternal life with him. Right? Jesus is this unique son of God. Not like any son of God, as we might read throughout the, the New Testament. Like every Christian is called a son of God, right? Jesus is the only one who was able and who did take our sins upon his shoulders. So we should honor him for who he truly is as the life-giving son of God. And we should believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins. But there's one more piece, right? Jesus is the unique son of God and therefore we should trust him. And this really flows out of the previous two. But part of the life of a Christian is growing to trust Jesus more and more and believing that what Jesus says is actually true for us. It's true for us even in the midst of suffering. It's true for us even in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptations. It's true for us even in the midst of the mundane events that we face day to day. Right? If I were to say, what is grace, right, we, would, we would all be able to say, probably, right, that we know that grace is God's unmerited favor and that God saved us by his grace. By grace, he saved us through faith. That's at the very heart of the gospel. We're saved and our sins are forgiven, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Right? That's the gospel, and we embrace that when we come to Christ. I think sometimes it's hard for us to hold on to grace. It seems like something that benefited us maybe in the past, and maybe we'll get the benefit of it in the future, but it doesn't always feel like it's with us in the present. Maybe that you've blown it with God. You feel like you've blown it with God. It might be a, a sin that you've struggled with over and over that weighs you down so heavily that you struggle to believe that God's grace is sufficient for you today. It might be that you have felt so hurt or let down by others that you feel like God doesn't see you or know you. But listen to Jesus' words, verse 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The words that Jesus speaks here are quite certain. The dead will hear, and those who hear will live. Not will hopefully live, but will live now. If you have heard the gospel and you believed, you will live. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust his ability to save you? Do you trust his ability to speak to you so that you can hear and respond? And if you are saved, do you still trust him to carry you through this life into the next, even through the trials and the difficulties and the hurts and the disappointments? It is amazing news that God has given authority to Jesus to do the greater work of calling you to salvation now, to keeping you in his care, and to judge you as righteous on the, on the last day. Think about that. Our beloved Savior will also be our judge. The one who laid down his life for us will be the one who will stand and declare us righteous. We can trust that Jesus knows us. He knows every sin. And if he truly calls us, we will be forgiven. Even when we struggle in the midst of sin. And so Jesus tells his listeners, he says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus shifts then his focus to the coming Final judgment. Jesus says, don't marvel at this. Don't marvel at what I'm doing. Don't marvel at what I've done, uh, everything I've said. Do not marvel that a man is claiming these things. But be amazed that the incarnate Son of God is standing before you, revealing these things to you, and inviting you to be saved. What's so amazing, what's so marvelous is that he doesn't just leave us in our sin, but he invites us to be forgiven. Because one day, as we said, the same man will judge you in the final judgment. Right? For some, that's a, that ought to be a stark warning. Right? If you reject Jesus and his offer of salvation, you will reject the one who is the righteous judge. And he'll pronounce judgment upon you And unless you have lived a perfectly righteous life, which is impossible, without one sin, then you will be condemned to eternal death. At the same time, for those who honor, believe, and trust in Jesus, if that's you, then you will find that the one who is tasked with judging your life is the same one who knows you, has given his very life to save your soul. Say, but yeah, but it says, those who have done good, what is the good that they're talking about? The good is believing in Jesus. Instead of judging you according to your own righteousness, he will look to the righteousness that he himself has placed upon you and has clothed you with. I'm reading a book by Pastor Ray Ortland, and um, probably if I've had a conversation with you lately, I've read from you for this book. It's amazing. Um, but listen to this quote. He said, At the cross, Jesus didn't sweep our evil under the rug, but he exposed it and he paid for it. The love of God is not a cheap compromise. 
His forgiveness is noble forgiveness. That's why when God washes you clean of all your sins in the blood of Christ, you can allow yourself to feel forgiven. Feeling new is the right response to the cross. Freedom is what God wants for you. The cross was the price that he was willing to pay. You can accept his grace with a clear conscience. When we consider our own lives today, in light of the the coming judgment, in light of the call upon Christ on our lives today, we, we think about all that's happening all the things that are in our lives that don't seem to have much significance. And yet we can trust that Jesus is at work even in those things. right? Because we know, because of Romans 8, right, that he works all things together for good. And as we study passages like this one in John 5, it should cause our hearts to swell up in worship at our great God and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we as a people would honor him with all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do. Pray that we would believe him in every word that he says. And I pray that we would trust him to walk us through this life and to safely bring us into the next one. Jesus is the unique son of God and therefore we should honor him. That's the reason why God made him judge of all. We should believe in him for only in him do we find salvation. And we should trust him for he is worthy of our trust and all praise. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not remain silent, but instead he has given himself and he has spoken that that we might know you, that we might find redemption and forgiveness in your uh, in his, uh, his blood, in his, uh, the forgiveness that he offers to us. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we consider, as we consider Jesus' life, as we consider the invitation, Lord, I pray that you would soften us, soften us toward you and soften us toward one another, or help us to know that we are a people who have been blood-bought and that we stand together not because of anything we have in common, but we stand together because we have you Father, because you have claimed our lives for yourself. Father, help us to live trusting you and glorifying Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.